Hello and welcome to India Speak, the podcast by the Center for Policy Research. I am Sushant Singh, Senior Fellow at the Center for Policy Research in India. This series of podcasts features leading global experts and academics on the many facets of Sino-India relations. Some of them, like Dennis Blasco, have looked at the military side of things, while others, like Arunab Ghosh, have focused on the historical facets. But today, we will be discussing the strategic aspects, looking at China and its troubled relationship with India through a strategic lens. And to do that, my guest today is a top scholar of international relations with a focus on international security, China and East Asia. Professor Taylor Frevel is the author and Ruth Sloan Professor of Political Science and Director of the Security Studies Program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Taylor has been a member of the Board of Directors of the National Committee on US-China Relations and serves as the Principal Investigator for the Maritime Awareness Project. His books include Strong Borders, Secure Nation, Cooperation and Conflict in China's Territorial Disputes, and Active Defense, China's Military Strategy Since 1949, which came in 2019. Taylor, welcome to India Speak. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, Taylor, both your books, the first one about China's territorial disputes with its neighbors and the second one about China's military strategy, have huge relevance for India today. Starting with your latest book first, in what manner exactly does the military strategy, the 1993 strategic guideline and the subsequent alterations of 2004 and 2014, winning informatized local wars, apply to India of today? Sure. Thanks, Sushant. That's a great question. So I think one has to break down the components of the strategic guideline in order to be able uh, to answer it. Uh, but the most important component would be to focus on this idea of local wars. In other words, uh, China's current strategy is designed uh, uh, to prevail in um, limited conflicts on its periphery, especially when sovereignty is contested. So of course, this includes the border with India, uh, but it also includes Taiwan, as well as the disputes in the East China Seas uh, and the South China Seas. This idea of the fact, or this idea of informatization or informationization uh, sort of refers to how these wars will be fought uh, with the application of high technology, um, connecting sensors, uh, shooters, and commanders, and focusing on uh, joint uh, operations. Now, in all of these strategies, uh, China has focused on what is known as uh, the strategic direction. And, and Chinese strategic guidelines have sort of identified a primary or a main strategic direction and then secondary or other strategic directions. And the point here for India is that India is not the primary strategic direction, uh, or, or, or in other words, the main uh, sort of conflict scenario that China's strategy is geared uh, to address. Uh, that, of course, is uh, Taiwan. Um, and questions relating to whether or not China might use force to pursue unification. And given the nature of that relationship, it has come to also include whether or not China might have to fight the United States in the context of uh, Taiwan. And so in this sense, uh, India has always been sort of a secondary uh, strategic concern uh, for China and in its military strategy and not a primary concern. And so I think it's, it's relevant uh, in that way. Now, uh, what is changing recently uh, in the last five years or so is that uh, China has shown a willingness, however, to sort of blur the distinction a bit between primary and secondary strategic directions, such that it's willing to at least tolerate friction in multiple directions at the same time, right? So we have today 
uh, sort of the, the increasing frequency of uh, Chinese Air Force flights uh, into Taiwan's air defense identification zone. Uh, you have uh, the almost permanent uh, presence of Chinese Coast Guard vessels near the disputed Senkaku Islands, of course, the massive buildup in the South China Sea, and then finally, of course, uh, the tensions that have been simmering along the border with India you know, for a decade, but that really came to a head in 2020. And now uh, the condition that we find ourselves in where there's significant you know, forces more or less permanently deployed uh, along the border. And so, although I think Taiwan still is the primary contingency and the main strategic direction, China's, for China, uh, Chinese leaders have been willing to sort of to tolerate friction and to take more forward uh, leading positions than in the past in multiple strategic directions. And that, of course, would include uh, India. Uh, Taylor, does the fact that the ground forces really would not be involved when it comes to South China Sea, Cocoa Islands or Taiwan, which is the primary challenge, as you said, but ground forces would be at the forefront of a challenge against India. Does that matter? I think it matters. I think it gives uh, the what is now known as the PLA Army, the PLAA, uh, or a, a clear mission in which it is the priority service. Uh, moreover, right, although one could envision uh, some degree of ground and air operations in, in the Himalayan and ma other mountainous regions, uh, certainly it's not going to be truly joint um, involving the Navy uh, and, 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 and so forth. And so in that sense, um, um, I think it does matter, um, although I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that tensions have increased primarily because uh, the ground forces need something to do, but training for this contingency certainly uh, keeps them quite busy and quite focused. Moreover, uh, but another thing I would say here is that um, I should have said earlier is the ground forces would be involved in sort of the most significant campaign against Taiwan, which would be an invasion. But uh, short of that, in other coercive campaigns, and certainly in the maritime disputes in the east and the south China Sea, the ground forces would be less involved. Um, also, as you know, right, China has a long land border, and so defending that entire stretch of of, of front frontage or that front line is also an important uh, mission uh, for the ground forces, even though the only area where it's hotly contested is uh, with India. Taylor, when you see the current PLA deployment on the India border, uh, does it fit in with the concept of active defense, which you, which you wrote about in your book? Uh, what would be the PLA's likely design of war as per your appreciation of the situation uh, based on what you see on the borders? So I think the concept of active defense you know, has been around since the 1930s, and it's, it's basically had different meanings at different points in time. So I just want to note that for your listeners. You know, in the 1930s, it was literally an operational concept for how to sort of um, deal with a stronger uh, forces arrayed by the nationalists in the Soviet sort of base areas in you know, Jiangxi and Fujian provinces and so forth. And then after 1949, it actually became sort of the military strategy in the sense of uh, China uh, sort of posturing its forces to counterattack after being invaded. And of course, the definition of active defense, you know, going back to the 30s is offense through defense or, or you know, being uh, defensive at the strategic level, but, off, but offensive at the sort of campaign, operational, and tactical levels. Now, today, it's almost more of a strategic principle that China will um, uh, retaliate once its interests have been violated. And so it doesn't necessarily need to include uh, being sort of attacked with armed force first, but certainly being attacked in, in other ways. And so in that sense, um, 
Uh, it's evolved over time. So how, how would that apply on the border today? I, I think it would be less about uh, Chinese forces uh, being attacked first by Indian forces, which I don't think have a strong incentive to do that. Uh, but of course, that would be one application. And so the second would be to, to be postured in a way to retaliate if China believed that India uh, took political or diplomatic actions uh, that harmed its interests in, 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 in the area where sovereignty is uh, contested. What does this mean in terms of deployments? I think it's hard to say. Uh, clearly, China has moved from a more recessed posture on the border or in the border areas. It's not actually, most of them are not literally on the border, right? They're, they're, they're still a setback uh, to some degree, but it's moved from a much more recessed posture to a less recessed and more forward posture. And what this says to me is that China is uh, making it much easier to retaliate the next time it believes that its uh, interests have been violated or attacked or, or uh, to deter uh, any what China might view at least as adventurism or opportunism by Indian uh, forces. Yeah, so Taylor, just to just to reiterate what you said is that China could decide on its own that its interests had been violated and it decided to undertake a counterattack, so to so to speak. It, it's it's its definition of counterattack is not actually a physical attack being retaliated. It's more uh, an interest or sovereignty or whatever issues it decides that are being violated. Am I right? Yes, with, with the caveat that it's not any issue, right? I mean, it, it's one that they believe poses direct harm to their core interests and thus requires. A military response in order to be defended. And so I, I don't think the PLA can see or Chinese leaders conceive of active defense necessarily as a blank check simply to do whatever it is that they want. Although, of course, they're always going to justify their actions as defensive. Um, and that's the other, I think, main purpose of active defense that I should have mentioned earlier, namely uh, to sort of seize the moral high ground, right, in, in any kind of conflict situation and claim that, of course, uh, China is, is, is only active acting in response to the sort of offensive actions of another state, whether those were military actions or other kinds of actions that harm Chinese, what China believes to be its core interests. Taylor, uh, but the red lines in this case, and I'm not using red as a pun, but the Chinese red lines in this case, vis-a-vis -vis India, what would those red lines be, uh, excluding the uh, physical escalation from Indian side or physical provocation, which is highly unlikely from the Indian side? Uh, what, what could those red lines be? I think um, we may have seen some of those red lines earlier, uh, going back to uh, in Article 370, uh, an, issue, an issue we've talked a lot about. But in other words, a, a perception on the on the part of Chinese leaders that India is adopting a, a significantly uh, new and, from their standpoint, more hostile or aggressive posture on the border dispute. Um, again, I, I, the Chinese leaders like to avoid red lines. Right, so, um, uh, or at least making them making them clear, but that kind of an action or something like that in the future, I think, would be something um, in which uh, they might view a military response as warranted. Although, of course, in this rubric of active defense, it need not be a kinetic response. It can be a threat of force, a display of force, uh, a movement of forces, uh, as well as the initiation of uh, combat uh, operations. And so, I think it would be something along those lines where China believed that India was sort of fundamentally altering its uh, position in the dispute uh, that, that which again, from China's standpoint, uh, did, did not go um, unchecked would uh, further weaken sort of China's position in, in the dispute in the long run and thus a response would be warranted. But I should also point out, right, China uh, in the past has been quite able and willing to live 
with uh, unresolved contested issues uh, to include the border with India, Taiwan, uh, and others. And so this is not the case that, um, or, or it would not be the case that active defense would, would be triggered um, at a very low threshold of actions taken by the other side, again, from China's standpoint, but something that would be viewed as a significant and, and negative shift uh, uh, in China's uh, position in the dispute. Reeling back a bit, Taylor, 21 months down the line, what is it about the current Sino-India border crisis that has really taken you by surprise? And if I may ask, why? I think still the most curious part to me is what happened, I guess, late April through the end of May of 2020, when there was a significant movement of forces um, in multiple areas at the same time, which... You know, uh, and in particular in areas where the, the line of actual control is itself is contested uh, with absolutely or almost absolutely no public statements by any PLA spokesperson, much less government spokesperson. So you had this really significant sort of shift on the border uh, without any corresponding kind of political or diplomatic campaign to include, right, uh, mobilizing the Chinese public against India in some way. And so it's both a combination of the significant movement um, in multiple areas that was unprecedented, as well as uh, the reticence uh, at, the, at, at, the, at sort of the public levels, at least. One doesn't know what was, or I don't know what was being said between the governments, but clearly publicly China was not seeking to sort of draw attention uh, to this. And so that to me is still somewhat puzzling. Um, and of course, that then set the stage uh, for uh, the clash at Gaowan, uh, leading up to everything else uh, that made the situation much more tense um, following you know, India's quid pro quo operation and the you know, quite serious standoff right, throughout the fall of 2020 and through February of, of 2021 in the areas you know, north and south of Pungal Lake. But you know, these things have changed in the recent months. There's been a very high-pitched uh, domestic coverage in China of the so-called Galwan heroes, the PLO soldiers who were part of the clash on 15 June uh, 2020 in Galwan, which you just referred to. Uh, they raised the flag in Galwan Valley on the New Year's Day this year. They broadcast the video, put it out on YouTube. The so-called heroes have been taken to schools. Special medals have been given to those PLA soldiers who died in Galwan. They've been put in Communist Party um, uh, documents. They've been, they've been hailed as heroes. The torchbearer at the Winter Olympics was a so-called Galwan hero. There's a new six-part documentary, which the CCTV is broadcast on China, uh, China's Western Theater Command, focused on what's the kind of deployment that is going on in Ladakh, and so on. The list goes on. What exactly is now going on here domestically in China? Well, uh that's a really important question. And, and the first thing I would say is it's important to note that China did not begin to draw attention to any of the heroes until after the February de-escalation, um, which is actually the opposite of the Indian approach, right? Um, the Indian approach was to draw attention you know, immediately uh, to those who, who perished uh, in the, the Gallon Valley, and rightly so. I don't, I don't, I don't just, that's not a criticism in any way. It shouldn't be viewed as such. Um, but what is I mean, more important is, is that China waited and waited quite a long time. And it appeared not to want to tie its hands in terms of bringing about at least a tactical um, a de-escalation that would sort of prevent, uh, at that point, a conflict that I think was unintended, certainly by China and, 
almost certainly by India as well. But at the same time, right, Xi Jinping has elevated uh, the role of nationalism in the defense of sovereignty and part of his Chinese dream. Chinese soldiers did die in the clash. Uh, from China's standpoint, they died defending Chinese territory. Uh, and because of the fact that China has not actually been engaged in many military conflicts in uh, the last few decades, there are very few uh, heroes that the PLA has uh, that can also underscore uh, its contribution, you know, underscore to the Chinese public the role that it plays in um, um, defending uh, Chinese interests. And so I think uh, all of the attention uh, given afterwards is sort of part of this broader narrative of the China dream of the defense of sovereignty, which one sees um, pretty frequently, but now uh, faces and names can be attached to uh, some individuals who played a very direct role uh, in, in doing so. Um, and of course, uh, China, like many uh, societies, uh, does you know, seek to, um, to, to honor people if it believes have been heroes who, who either stood up to defend Chinese interests or died doing so. And so I think that's one element. Of, or those would be the first two elements, right? There is this very important pause, uh, which I think was politically driven. And then I think uh, you had uh, great attention uh, being drawn to these individuals to include one serving as a torchbearer, as you know. Uh, and then thirdly, I would say, it reflects the power of the Chinese kind of propaganda apparatus, because once this has been deemed to be an acceptable topic of conversation, you have sort of um, all of the kinds of things that you just mentioned, right? It, it, and, it, it, and it's very clearly, I think, partly intended, right, to bolster the um, sort of the view of the armed forces uh, in China, um, which, you know, uh, um, hasn't necessarily be seen, been seen as doing um, as much lately, given you know, the peaceful environment that, that China has enjoyed. And I think it also, I find the last thing I would, I would say here is that I don't, I don't think it, much of this is actually directed at India, right? It's all, it seems very clearly for the most part uh, as being directed to an internal audience. Um, and then occasionally, especially the Global Times might draw attention to something like this. And then once it get, comes out in English, it gets sort of circulated within sort of the Indian media. But, but if one looks at the totality of what they're doing, I think it is very much an internally focused propaganda uh, style campaign uh, to focus on uh, uh, real heroes from China's standpoint. I think it's less about or it's less targeted at India, even though if one was sitting in India, one would view it as being quite clearly targeted at India. Taylor, can the Communist Party, Chinese Communist Party, really dial down the nationalism once they're once they have up the ante, so to speak, or do they really have the power to calibrate this up and down? You know, because in most countries you can dial up the nationalism, but you cannot dial it down very quickly. Uh, can the Communist Party even dial it down if tomorrow there is there is you know the situation de-escalates and both sides need to step back? Can they quickly uh, uh, dial it down? I think they can more quickly dial it down than other societies, especially more democratic ones, um, <clears throat> because after all, they do control or, or they do regulate the news media through the, the party's propaganda department. And, when, and certainly in the past has, has seen efforts to do so, say, in ties with Japan or in other circumstances. And so I think if this propaganda campaign was viewed as uh, presenting an obstacle in some way, uh, they could uh, uh, certainly uh, turn down the volume. All that being said, though, right? Uh, if one goes back to the way in which Xi Jinping has elevated sovereignty 
um, and the defense of sovereignty is part of the Chinese dream, right? This is this is a from the party standpoint a legitimate uh, issue to cover and to discuss, uh, and so. Uh, that also reflects that sort of the power of the party in shaping the discourse, but but in that that kind of a discourse might be slightly harder to change uh, or to tone down um, because it is now so clearly attached uh, to China's uh, leader. That said, uh, I think if the party um, and the leadership did want to at least uh, pursue tactical pauses, they could certainly issue propaganda directives that would say, you know, do not cover. Um, you know, the China-India border or only use uh, text from the Xinhua news, news agency in your coverage of the China-India border. And very quickly, you would see sort of uh, the homogenization of coverage of these uh, stories, certainly uh, within uh, China. Taylor, uh, just coming, coming back to the border crisis per se, you know, the arrangements, agreements, the SOPs between India and China or the border areas, you know, held good for nearly three decades. So. Mm -hmm. Why did they break down now in the summer of 2020? Was it always coming? Did we not see it? Did we not see what happened with Doklam? And did we misread the resolution of the Doklam crisis of 2017? What is it really that happened here? So my view, um, these, uh, the 93-96 agreements um, could no longer contain the level of activity uh, by both sides you know, along the line of actual control and in disputed areas, which is to say those agreements were reached at a time when uh, the line of actual control in many places was probably very hard for either side to access. Thus, uh, you had very few opportunities for forces to come into contact with each other, especially on the same day, right? So you might have uh, a weekly patrol or a monthly patrol and one side would leave uh, a, a tin can of food for the other side to find something you might be familiar with, um, uh, but no, no actual contact. And um, you know, there's been a very significant increase in border uh, infrastructure, especially on the Chinese side, but also on the Indian side, uh, which means you have increased uh, rates of, of patrols. Um, I don't know uh, the rate of patrols on both sides. I assume the Chinese patrol quite regularly, but at least Indian reports, Indian media reports I've come across seem to indicate you know, a shift from, say, patrolling certain areas on a weekly basis to patrolling them on a daily basis. And so, um, in, in essence, you had uh, such high levels of contact that I think, and, and forces in much closer proximity, that these agreements in some ways were just no longer relevant to the circumstances that, that now exist on the border, and certainly are not at all relevant now that um, um, the events of Galwan have happened and you have, you know, quite significant uh, sort of forward presence on the Chinese side and, and, and what appears to be on the Indian side as well. So it seems to me that new agreements are needed, right? That, that these agreements um, uh, held for a period of time, um, but new agreements would be needed to, to sort of address the new challenges uh, to stability uh, on the border created by this much uh, greater presence and ease of operating. And you know, one can envision different ways in which these agreements could, new agreements could be crafted, but I think uh, simply the old agreements outlive their usefulness uh, because the situation on a border changed in a way that those agreement, that those past agreements simply could not continue. You know, Taylor, you're absolutely right on that one. When I speak to uh, Indian, retired or serving Indian military officers, they tell me that uh, somewhere around the second uh, half of the first decade of the century, that is between around 2007, 8, 9, 10, 
the Indian, the quantum of Indian forces on the LAC increased as well as the infrastructure on the LAC and the frequency of patrols consequently increased. And this is one of the complaints from the PLA commanders that, you know, historically you have never come to these areas earlier or have come very, very infrequently. Why are you coming so frequently? What's your, what's your design and why are you asserting your claims? And that's, as you know, that's where clashes have taken place. Uh, border patrols have, you know, have come into contact with each other. And that clearly, as you rightly brought out, has put strain on the on the on the ex existing agreements, you know, existing protocols, and they've clearly now broken down. Uh, Taylor, do you also think that the 2017 Doklam crisis, where the Indians went and stopped China and Bhutan, did did, did it also, in a material way, affect the Chinese thinking about India? I, I think it had a significant impact on Chinese assessments of Indian intentions um, and Indian sort of resolve to defend. Um, not just their claims uh, along uh, the, the border, but also Bhutan's claims. Um, because as, as you may recall, right, India moved forces across um, what both China and India agree is an international frontier. They just don't agree uh, which countries lies on, on the opposite side of that international frontier. China you know, has claimed, uh, claims this area as part of Chinese territory and certainly where the clash took place, it's been under, or appears to have been under effective Chinese control, though not heavily built up for quite some time. At least one can find images of roads, you know, via Google Earth going back, that connect to China going back to the 1990s when those images first uh, became available. And so I think the Chinese, excuse me, the Indian action really surprised the Chinese. And if you recall, the level of rhetoric in the summer of 2020 was actually harsher than the level of rhetoric in the summer of 2020, despite the fact that you had a the first deadliest clash in decades, right? And a really actually quite serious situation in the summer of 2020. But in the summer of 2019, I think the Chinese concluded that India had violated um, a, a pretty important uh, principle from their standpoint. And this, I think, was then projected uh, in sort of across the other disputes uh, between China and India. And so you, you see, of course, an increase in... Um, uh, Indian reporting of Chinese incursions across the LAC after that, especially in uh, the Western sector around the dock, where I think it's easier for sort of patrols to come into contact uh, with each other. And so I think China probably elevated its posture in response. Um, and, and then, of course, we sort of see the action reaction cycles. That said, I think uh, you know, at least the trigger of Doklam in terms of Chinese sort of road building um, was not connected uh, to Indian uh, perception or, or to Chinese perceptions of India, but simply to what at that point had been at least a decades-long effort to 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 basically be able to 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 have decent roads that go right up to the very edge of the line of actual control. Um, I don't think China was by building that particular road was seeking uh, to cut the chicken's neck. It, actually, it's very difficult for China to move forces there. Um, and India has, I don't know how many divisions on the other side, but it's, it's a he very heavily defended area. So I don't believe that was Chinese intention. I think China's intention was simply to um, um, engage in this, or, or it's just the, the manifestation of this road building in that particular area, but it triggered an Indian sensitivity. Um, and there's, of course, a, a real mystery that I have not yet um, fully understood, which is the you know, China apparently notified the Indian commander um, multiple times in May uh, that they would be undertaking this activity. Um, and, and, and so it, it, it seems to me, or I don't quite, I don't understand what happened with that information. Um, uh, 
uh, or or why knowing that information um, there weren't other other efforts to sort of address the situation because I, I really do think it was a historical turning point uh, and so uh, and it wasn't a, it wasn't sort of meant by China as a fait accompli because it's recorded. And I think I don't acknowledge on the Indian side that these notifications uh, were made. Now, maybe that the scale of, of, of equipment that China brought in was simply inconsistent with the notification that Chinese made. There could be other explanations, but it's a bit of a, a mystery that that um, I don't yet fully understand. Yeah, but whatever may have happened, as you say, the the the, the outcomes or the or the impact of that that was that was much bigger than. Than what it seemed at that point and uh, what, what one time. Uh, tell uh, what exactly now we see this crisis going on, the rhetoric, etc. What exactly are China's intentions, uh, and are they really driven by Xi's own personality? Are they linked to the Chinese domestic politics in some other way? The the Congress, the the, the party Congress that is coming up, is it about Taiwan? The fact that they are not able to uh, get back Taiwan. Is it about some other external drivers vis-a-vis -vis India, Quad, Indo-Pacific, the United States? What really are the drivers of this crisis in China now? Um, if, if you mean now as in, in February 2022, I think you know, China has taken a position that it does not, I mean, it, 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 it appears to, to want to main, maintain the new status quo on the border uh, and to uh, prevent the escalation of the situation to armed conflict um, and to, I don't think, not to pursue a reset with India, that may be impossible, but certainly uh, to uh, maintain uh, some semblance of uh, workable diplomatic ties, perhaps in part to um, set, the, set, set the table for driving a wedge through the quad later on. But I think China has adopted a position, and even it did quite quickly after, after Gaowan, that that it that it wanted to try to put the genie back in the bottle, as it were. Um, if one looks at the way sort of Chinese diplomacy in June and, and July of 2020. Now, if one wants to talk about China's intentions leading up to sort of May uh, and June of 2020, I, I think you know Occam's razor would simply say their perceptions of the situation on the border, and perhaps exacerbated by. Um, uh, the pandemic in China and a heightened sort of sensitivity to sort of external threats at that time, uh, even though I think what China views as, as at least the Indian provocations occurred, uh, you know, mostly in 2019 um, and perhaps in the early part of, of 2020. Uh, but so I think one has to also, in answering this question, distinguish what were the intentions that may have motivated China uh, to to sort of make those moves in in May or late April, early May of 2020 versus uh, what is sort of motivating uh, China now. But this is the year of a party Congress. I think China seeks um, uh, stability whenever there's a, a party Congress. This party Congress is perhaps the most important Congress held uh, uh, since uh, the start of reform and opening in that it will uh, almost certainly uh, consolidate uh, Xi's uh, third term uh, as uh, general secretary of the party, and presumably um, his third term uh, or, or continuing his chairmanship of the Central Military Commission, uh, becoming president this in the following spring for another term, uh, and and maybe or maybe not, depending on what happens, signaling some um, succession plan. I think based upon kind of the ages of the individuals who make it to the Politburo Standing Committee, whether or not they would still be eligible to serve on the Politburo at the 2027 Party Congress. 
Also, there's massive turnover in the Central Committee, which is the body that sort of um, is elected or selected or pre-designated at the Party Congress, uh, which is a, an opportunity for Xi to, to sort of consolidate his position in that leading body, perhaps for several more Party Congresses to come. And so I think China's attention is very much focused inwards uh, on achieving uh, or, or sorry, the, the attention of China's leadership is very much focused inwards on this party Congress, which, which I think makes me, I think they would, prefer, if they can, they, they would pr prefer to maintain sort of a stable equilibrium in their external ties to the degree that the external environment allows them uh, to do so and, and not to sort of upset or, or, or to create issues that become, that could somehow upset the arrangements that are being put in place for the party Congress this coming fall. Uh, Taylor, so how will this problem now between India and China be resolved? You know, are you hopeful about it be resolved, or are we walking closer to a conflict between uh, between two nuclear powers, two major powers in in Asia? I don't think it will be resolved in the sense of there being an agreement uh, to delimit and demarcate the border. Um, I do think uh, one could see stability for a period of time to come, uh, and and that is of course short of a resolution. Um, but um, better than the alternatives. Uh, I don't think China has strong incentives uh, to um, take offensive action uh, against India. At the same time, I think they've signaled very clearly that they're not going to sort of uh, compromise, uh, especially in Ladakh, where I don't know, you, you would know better than I, I think India has always believed it might be able to gain more concessions from China. And I think you know China's sort of forward uh, deployment and, and entrenchment of forces uh, that I'm guessing you discussed with them. Dennis Blasco indicates, right, that 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 you know the the, the current situation along the border uh, with uh, India is the one that uh, China would basically support in a final uh, settlement, and so um, that has potential to be stabilizing in the set if both sides sort of agree, you know, have a de facto agreement to. Um, accept it and not challenge it. That would include China not challenging India in certain areas, and then India not challenging uh, China in certain areas, especially um, in those areas where the perception of the line of actual control differs. Of course, there are unresolved issues, including those you've written about yourself, uh, namely around Debsong. Um, but I think at least at the strategic level, I don't. China probably sees little benefit uh, now of, of antagonizing India so long as it can uh, maintain and, and sort of deepen and consolidate control over those areas in the Western sector that it it uh, has no intention of um, giving up in any kind of final negotiated settlement. And so, I, as I said, right, China has lived with unresolved issues uh, for a long time, or ha has in the past, depending on the issue. I think the key is whether or not uh, the situation from China's standpoint is viewed as a stable one or as an unstable one, which in part is a function of their perceptions of um, uh, Indian policies and sort of behavior along um, the line of actual control. But I don't see China necessarily as, as, as sort of seeking to further antagonize India now, both for the, both in the short term due to uh, questions related to the Quad and to the party Congress and then the longer term in terms of um, sort of the Quad and so forth. And so I, I, I think, you know, it's not, a, it's not an inherently stable situation, 
when you have more forward deployed forces. And so I think there's more work to be done. Um, and in particular, um, I think the two sides should consider renegotiating the 93 and 96 agreements to take into account kind of um, the, the new situation along the border. They could include, um, if they were diplomatically creative, like creating kind of no-go zones where the perceptions of the LAC had conflict, because that is always the spark, it seems to me. Uh, and so um, if that is always the spark, then to remove uh, opportunities for, uh, for fires to start there would be, I think, hugely um, sort of beneficial in terms of peace and stability and would not help resolve the dispute. And I think, you know, both sides might view that they would be giving up something because they wouldn't be able to sort of go to their extent of the line of actual control, but but the benefit may be a more stable situation along the board. You know, uh, on that hopeful and optimistic note, uh, Taylor, that both sides will agree to a newer status quo, which is more stable, more peaceful, less tense. You know, thank you so much, Taylor. This was so illuminating and so wonderful talking to you. Uh, so great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you listeners for listening. For more information on our work, follow us on Twitter at CPR underscore India and log on to our website at www.cprindia.org.